Now, if you would return with me back to the portion we read this morning, the Gospel of John chapter um, 16, I'll be looking at some portions in there, but but also turn to uh, chapter 17 and look there with me beginning in verse 9. Notice what our Lord declares there. I pray for them. I pray for as many as the Father has given me. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now, as you read the word of God, this word world, it may refer to the redeemed and at other times uh, the world in general. The world in general. Notice our Lord is saying, I pray for them, the whosoevers of the world that the Father gave him to save in the covenant of grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now when the Holy Spirit comes to reprove, to convince of sin, of of righteousness and judgment, this is not speaking of the world in general. Look with me in the portion we read. Uh, I'll just begin reading there in John chapter 16, verse 7. Our Lord tells us, ever so blessedly, now remember and underscore this, He does not lie. He is the one man who does not lie. He tells us, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Again, the Lord prays for his disciples, whom the Father has given him out of the world. And this portion is speaking about the the redeemed uh, world, this portion in John chapter 16. It's not speaking about the world he prays not for, but the world of his elect. The same world that Jesus said God so loved when speaking to Nicodemus. Again, John 3.16, probably the best known verse in Scripture declares, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. In other words, the elect of God out of the world. Not just from the Jewish nation, and that's the reason that he says that that that, that, that world there. That's why John says that. He was a Jew, and he wanted everyone to know that this was not just the Savior of the nation of Israel, but the nations. As Revelation 5 verse 9 says, and, and remember, it's the people in heaven pictured in John's vision. And they're all praising God. And they sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And so not just the Jewish nation, but an elect world of Gentiles, as well as the Jews that are brought to life by God in Christ. We read in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, The Gentiles shall come to thy light. I wonder why the Jews thought then. What's this prophet saying? The Jews are the people of God, and, and 
here, clearly, the prophet Isaiah declares the gospel of the New Testament. It's the same in the Old and the New. It's the same gospel. Saying, the Gentiles shall come to thy light. And in Luke chapter 2, when Simeon, who had been waiting at the temple to see the salvation of God, when he held the infant Christ, that little boy, just eight days old, when he had held him in his arms, he said, Now mine eyes have seen thy salvation, and I can depart in peace. He said there in Luke 2.32, the infant Christ was to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, we read there, For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. God so loved the world, and he will convince that world of sin, the world of his elect. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. As many of these Gentiles as were ordained to eternal life, they believed the message that they heard preached. You see, out of the generality of mankind, God has chosen a multitude, and he put them in union with Christ before the beginning of time to save them from sin and condemnation to unite them eternally with God in the person of His Son, and in time at Calvary. God the Son redeemed every one of them individually. He redeemed them. He paid the price for them. He bought them back from the curse. Because everyone's under the curse of the law. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ has redeemed us from that curse of the law. What did He do? Or when did He do that? Beloved, he did that at Calvary. At the cross of Calvary, he redeemed them from the law's curse. And in the experience of everyone individually, at some point in their life, the Holy Spirit convinces them of salvation. These people, the elect of God, out of all the world, the Spirit of God will reprove. He will convince these people of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Allison, he'll, he'll convince his people of three things. Of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. What does the Holy Spirit convince the world of God's elect? That's the question that I'm endeavoring to answer this morning. He reproves the world. He convinces the world. He convicts the world of his elect people of sin. You see, in our true natural state before the eternal holy God, he convinces us what we are by nature as sinners before him. And he brings his people to know the, offenses, the offensiveness of sin to God. You see, by nature, naturally speaking, we don't find an awful sense of sin. By nature, we don't loathe that plague of sin within us until the Holy Spirit comes and convinces us and convicts us of sin. And He imparts that feeling so that we know something of what we are, that we may know something of the offense of our sin to God. And the Holy Spirit puts an end to any vain thoughts that we can somehow make amends for our sin. And we are caused... To, to look to a substitute to intercede for us. You see, he causes us to look to Christ. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord and he shall save thee. We're brought to wait on the Lord, beloved, to believe on him and to look to him for not some of our salvation, but ever so blessedly all of it. In Joseph Hart's uh, hymn book, he has that 
that hymn titled, A Sinner is a Sacred Thing. And there's a stanza in that hymn that reads, What comfort can a Savior bring to those who never felt their woe? A sinner is a sacred thing, for the Holy Ghost hath made him so. New life from God we must receive before for sin we rightly grieve. You see, all have sinned, all without exception. But here's the thing. The vast majority have no consciousness of it. They don't feel it. They don't loathe it. It's of no concern to them whatsoever. But when the Holy Spirit convinces of sin, when the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, convicts us of sin, well, should that ever happen to you? Ever happen to me? And and it does over and over again, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, the reason why that happens is because that sinner who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is a sacred thing. And why is it that uh, a sinner is a sacred thing? Because he's brought to a knowledge of what he is and how he is brought there. Our Lord tells us the spirit of truth. Remember in the previous chapter, John chapter 15, he says, I will send the spirit of truth and he'll proceed from the father and he'll testify of me. And in the glorious light and countenance of God's well-pleasing son, he shows us our desperate need to be saved by him and him alone. See, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes sinners sacred things. And so the Holy Spirit brings a clear, unmistakable conviction of sin. And with that clear conviction of sin starts dependence on another's righteousness. You see, a clear conviction of sin is what makes you look to Christ alone and depend on his righteousness for what you need. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts the world of his elect people of sin. He brings that distinguishing mark for those who say that they are true believers and have got no concept of sin before a holy God are not true believers. This is the remarkable thing. The Lord tells his disciples, and this is our experience. We know it to be true of ourselves. He said, and you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will my father give to them that ask? And we do beg him, Lord, Save me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. But those who merely profess to be believers, those who have never been given this God-wrought conviction of sin, well, they don't know the first thing of the truth of God. But the Holy Spirit, He he convicts us. Indeed, He convinces us of sin. But so too, He also convicts us of righteousness. John 16, verse 9 of sin because they believe on, not on me. That's the root of all sin, beloved. The root of all sin and rebellion is unbelief. They believe not on me. Verse 10, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The Holy Spirit convicts the elect of God out of this world of the perfection that's required by God. If you would know God, if you would experience eternal life, if you would know this eternal life in Christ, knowing the only true God in His Son, who He has sent, then you must know the perfection that God requires. In Leviticus 19, verse 2, God says to His people, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You see, you and I must be holy. In Matthew 5, verse 48, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus said to the crowd listening to Him, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. He didn't say, have a good try at it. 
He didn't say, do your best. It's the trying that counts. Oh, no, he said, be ye perfect. You must be perfect. What does that mean? It means absolutely no blot, no blemish, nothing that isn't 100% perfect. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. How righteous must you be for your righteousness to be satisfactory to go into the presence of God? Because remember, God won't let anything into heaven that isn't perfect. In Matthew 5, verse 20, our Lord tells us, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were known in the Jewish society at that time as the most holy of people. Their lives were the most conformed to the law of God. Their lives and practice of religion in every detail were blameless in that they didn't offend in any way. That is, if they were proper practicing scribes and Pharisees. They were known as being righteous in that society. They were known for being the most pious and upright people. And yet the Lord Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that, because the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees isn't good enough. Oh no, your righteousness must exceed that for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Remember what the Lord calls all men's righteousnesses? Do you remember, Allison, Sandra? God's word calls them in Isaiah 64, verse 6, nothing but filthy rags in his sight. The righteousness of man has got no value whatsoever in God's sight, just soiled, ruined rags. Rags so horrible that they're not fit to mop up anything. You see, my friend, God requires perfection. He insists upon it. We read in Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Do you have holiness, the holiness that God requires? Do I have holiness, holiness of character, holiness of conduct, holiness of speech and of actions? You look on your own heart every minute of the day and you find nothing of the sort there in the flesh. But God looks on the heart of that new man, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And First Peter 1 verse 15 declares, As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And Paul, quoting Deuteronomy, writes in Galatians 3 verse 10, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Cursed is everyone that doesn't constantly, perfectly obey the law of God. And none of us, naturally speaking, is good enough to do that. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. God looketh down from heaven to see if there were righteous people, righteous men and women. He looked down to see if there was righteousness. And what did he find when he looked down before the flood? The thoughts and intents of the heart of man was nothing other than evil continually. That's what he saw, just evil continually. Has God the Holy Spirit convinced you to, of this fact? You who desire to be under the law, have you heard the law? Have you not heard what it says? Has the law of God not taught you? Do you know what the law of God is? 
Paul says to the Galatians, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The one who will correct us, the one who will point us to what we need, which is Christ alone, is the law. Has the law of God taught you how far short you fall of God's requirement for perfection? Has the Spirit of God given you a glimpse of God's holiness, the holiness that you need to attain to as he gave Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? Remember when Isaiah went into the temple and he was given a vision of the Lord Jesus? And we know it is the Lord Jesus Christ because it was a manifestation of the living God. And any manifestation of the living God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah chapter 6, he saw the Lord, his train filling the temple, and great visions of the divine presence in that place. And having seen what he saw, and the angels crying, Holy, 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 then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I have seen him. Or as Job said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. I was a religious man, but now my eye has seen the living God, and I have, because of that sight, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Wherefore, I abhor myself, Job says, and repent in dust and ashes. My friend, has he convinced you? As Paul said to the Romans in Romans 8, verse 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. Naturally, we have no righteousness, nor ability to produce it. Yet God demands it. God's holiness demands perfection, without which no man shall see the Lord. My friend, there's no heaven without it, and yet we can't achieve it by the works of the law or by the things that we do. The answer to the question, what must I do to be saved from God's just condemnation is this. You can't do anything. You are incapable of doing anything. For whatever you would do is insufficient to satisfy the justice and holiness of God. And Job asked that question, how should a man be just with God? And the answer is given. God sets forth Christ, a ransom, a fitting substitute, one who is able to make his people the righteousness of God. How do you become the righteousness that God requires? You must be made it. You must be made the righteousness of God. How are you made the righteousness of God? By one coming as a perfect substitute with the ability, with the power, with the qualities, with the characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ, coming in perfect submission to his Father's will. And he did that on the cross, being made sin of his people. Now, though I don't come anywhere near to understanding what that really means, but I know that he was made sin for his people. That I do know. And why was that? So that his people might be made the righteousness of God in him. How would you be righteous enough for God? How would I, how would you, Sandra and Allison, how would we be made the righteousness of God? Well, you and I must be made the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is our message above all else. If I'm going to preach, this is what I want to preach. I have nothing else to say 
or I've got nothing to say. Nor is any true preacher to tell you what you must do to live a good life. All I want to do is point you to the righteousness of God that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. For our Heavenly Father hath made His only begotten Son to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The people of God, chosen in eternity, are made the righteousness that God requires by the person and finished work of God's dear Son. Is that not the message of this book? How should a man be just with God? You see, when it comes to that great and terrible day of judgment, when all things are brought to an end, how should you or I be found just and holy, justified and righteous with God, so that we're accepted into heaven? My friend, the answer is by being found in Christ. In Philippians 3, verse 9, Paul says to the Philippians, What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I counted all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, in Christ. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, what does that mean? It's not that I believe Christ, and therefore that's counted as if I myself did a lot of good works. No, it's, it's what Christ did alone. You see, it's the faith of Christ, the, the faithful work of Christ in fulfilling all the requirements of the law and going to the cross of Calvary in satisfying the law's demand that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And he dying in the place of the people who were in union with him from all eternity, that's the faith of Christ. He did it. He accomplished it. He completed the work on the cross and said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost and died. You see, the faith of Christ is what accomplished all of that. The righteousness, which is of God by faith, we truly, we experience it. We apprehend it by faith. The faith that the Holy Spirit gives us to look and to believe, and we look to Christ who has satisfied every demand of God as the substitute of His people. Where we couldn't, beloved, He did. And I know as often as I teach you this, I don't apologize for for repeating it because it's so profound. My friend, if you get a hold of this, you're going you've got the essence of of true religion. And we read his name in Jeremiah 23 verse 6. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ says this, his name whereby he shall be called is the Lord our righteousness. We're his people, and we need his perfect righteousness without which no man shall see the Lord. How do we have the righteousness we need? By having the Lord, by having Him, by possessing Him, by Him being my God and my Savior. Beloved, He is the Lord, our righteousness, and by virtue of the union of His people with Him in that eternal spiritual marriage from before the beginning of time, right through until the end, until time has ended, His people's name, the elect of God, the world which He came to convince of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, His people's name is found in Jeremiah 33, verse 16. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called. Speaking about his bride, his church. She shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 33, verse 16. 
You know, when, when a woman marries a man, she takes his name. And this bride of Christ was married in the eternal union to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the Lord, our righteousness. And that's the name with which she shall be called. We read in Daniel chapter 9 about the Messiah coming, the prince to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation. Why reconciliation? Because God is offended by sin and for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. So how do I know that it's been effectual? How do I know that? Well, look in our portion there. Look at John 16, verse 10. It says there, of righteousness. How do I know these things are so? How does he convince us of righteousness? Because he said, I go to my Father and you see me no more. Beloved, he rose from the dead. He's gone to the Father. As Romans 4.25 says, he delivered. He was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You see, he was put upon the cross to bear the penalty for the sins of his people, but raised from the dead for our justification. And he convinces us that righteousness is accomplished in him. And the perfect righteousness of God in Christ is imputed to his people. It's reckoned to their account, to the account of his people. It's, it's made over to their account, beloved. We read in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believes in Jesus." Beloved, now is the righteousness of God revealed without the works of the law. The righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ, so that God is just still, just in punishing sin perfectly, and the justifier of him whose trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's imputed righteousness. If you trust in Christ, if you are in Christ, you have his righteousness made over to your account in the records of God. The righteousness of God in Christ. And not only that, it's not only imputed, but it's imparted in the new birth. The child of God, the world of the elect of God, convinced, convicted, reproved of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. They have imparted to them in the new birth clear Holy Spirit conviction. You must be born again, said Jesus to Nicodemus. You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in sovereign grace according to the eternal purpose of God. And on this one and that one, he opens their eyes. He opens their ears. He opens their hearts and he plants in each one a new life, the life of the Spirit of God. 
and he gives a new nature within, so that the one who believes in Christ has two natures. The old nature of the flesh, which can do nothing other than sin, and that which in itself is never improved. And then the new creature. Two natures. The old nature and the new, the new nature. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you read Romans 7, Paul talks about the conflict that is in the believer. That when he wants to do good, evil is present with him. That which he would do, he can't do. That which he doesn't want to do, he finds he constantly does. In Galatians 5, we read about the spirit and the flesh, how that they're contrary to one another. The characteristics of the one believing person are two natures in conflict with one another. The spirit against the flesh. And the flesh wants to do the things of the flesh, and the spirit wants to do the things of God. In 1 John chapter 1, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in chapter 3, he says, He that is born of God cannot sin. Well, is he contradicting himself? In no wise, beloved. Not at all. Rather, he's talking about the two natures. The new nature, which cannot sin, is given by the Holy Spirit. And the old nature of the flesh, which does nothing other than sin. So, do you see how God's salvation is set forth in Scripture? How that it actually accomplishes its objective? It makes the people of God the righteousness of God in Christ. And it works. It works. It gets the job done. You see, the salvation declared by this book works. It's effectual. For Christ has made his people the righteousness of God in him. Now, finally, verse 11. Verse 11. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. You see, the knowledge of sin and the required righteousness of Christ convinces us of judgment. You see, if we know that we're sinners and we know that God requires righteousness, well, that convinces us of how just God is in his just judgment. You see, God would not be true if he did not punish all sin. But when we look at Christ's victory at Calvary, at Calvary, you would think it was a defeat, but it wasn't. Oh, no, it was the most triumphant victory through which he made an open show of his enemies. Because in the very moment Satan was convinced he had triumphed over Christ, the Christ of God, in that very moment, it was the moment in which our sovereign, successful Savior utterly disarmed this wicked accuser of the brethren. He disarmed him of his wicked ability to accuse God of any injustice in letting sinners into heaven. Satan was so disarmed and bound in his ability that he can do no evil to the purpose of God at Calvary. At Calvary, it was there the believer by faith is convinced that judgment is finished for all who are in Christ, and this is what it means. He convinces us of judgment. How that by God-given faith in looking to Christ, we are made to see what was accomplished at Calvary. And the believer is convinced that judgment is finished for all who are in Christ. Now, to be clear, God will judge all sin. We all have an appointment with death. For it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, the Christ of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men that he hath raised him from the dead. There's a day of judgment coming, 
and we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. John 3.36 declares, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. But for God's elect, for the world that he came to convince of sin and righteousness and judgment, for God's elect, judgment was finished in Christ at Calvary. That's what he convinces us of. The judgment is finished in Christ. That at Calvary, Satan was judged and bound there. Thus, God's elect are released from the fear of death. How can that be? Because when it comes to the fear of death, for the believer, we read in Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And we read in Romans 8, beginning in verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? They're sinners, aren't they? Yes, but it's God that's justified them in Christ. And he's convinced them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. We read in Romans 8, verse 34, Who is he that condemneth? Is Satan the accuser of the brethren? Is he going to come and condemn us before God? In no wise. For it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. And by his resurrection, God has vindicated all that he did. God the Father has put his seal of approval on him in raising him from the dead. Him who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing, absolutely nothing, beloved, can separate us from the love of Christ. You see, all will be judged. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and the books will be opened. We read in Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20, beginning in verse 12, and in this vision toward the end of the book of Revelation, John tells us, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Now, remember, these books are symbolic that God misses nothing, that God sees everything, and that he remembers everything without exception. And the books were opened, and everything they thought or had done was laid bare. And another book was opened, singular, notice, a singular book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, in proportion to their works for punishment in accordance with their works. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were, were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell, meaning reprobate people and the fallen rebellious angels that were before, were, 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 that, that were there, they were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the books, in the, in the book of life, singular, book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. What's the book of life? It's the book of the elect of God, redeemed by Christ, chosen in him, redeemed by him, and brought to eternal glory in him. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Strict justice for all, either being held personally responsible for sin or satisfied in Christ. That's how God is just and justifier of all those, of, 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 of all whose names were, who are written in the book of life. And it was all satisfied in Christ, beloved. That is what the Holy Spirit of God convinces the world of his elect about. Now, this is my question to you. Has the Holy Spirit of God convinced you of these things? Has he convinced you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment? 
our Lord tells us in our portion. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. May the Father teach us by his Spirit, according to as our Lord has said. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, take the clean water of the gospel of your Son and bless it with your Spirit this morning. For Christ's sake and his glory and the good of thy people, I pray.